Welcome to Expound, our weekly worship and verse-by-verse study of the Bible. Our goal is to expand your knowledge of the truth of God as we explore the Word of God in a way that is interactive, enjoyable, and congregational. Father in heaven, we're about to open up your book, your truth, your words, inspired by God, inerrant in all that they speak of. And you have a word or several words to speak to us pertaining to our lives, our condition, our situation, our pain, and our joys. And we give you permission to do that. We've come, Lord, to learn. We've come, Father, to empty ourselves of ourselves and to be filled with your Holy Spirit and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray your Spirit would help us and would speak to us, I mean in a firm way, in a real way, an authentic way, in a way that would change the way we think. That little by little, week by week, Bible study by Bible study, we would be more conformed into the image of Christ. Lord, the last thing I ever want to do is to do something and say words that changes no one, where we just go living our lives as normal. We cannot. We're in on something eternal, something really big called the gospel. So, Father, we pray your Spirit would simply do your work in each heart. Here at our other campus in Santa Fe, people listening by radio, watching on the Internet, whatever means. But by all means, Father, shape us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the most profound statements ever made was made in the Gospel of John chapter 1. You say, skip, wrong book, we're in Mark chapter 1. I know, but listen up. He said, and the Word became flesh. That is so profound. I can't even get my head around that. Great is the mystery of godliness, Paul said to Timothy, that God was manifested in a body, in flesh. The Greek term for God is the word theos. Theology comes from that. Theocratic has that in it. Theos means God in Greek. The Greek word for man is anthropos, anthropology. Philanthropy all have that idea of man in it. What makes Jesus absolutely unique is that he is both theos, God, a very God, and anthropos. And the theologians give it a special title, a special name, that the nature of Jesus is theanthropic. Theanthropic. Theos and anthropos, God and man, mixed together in one person, that he is fully God and fully man. Great is the mystery of godliness, God manifest in the flesh. The four Gospels have four different portrayals of Jesus, each a little bit different. Mark will focus on the servant nature of Jesus. He's always busy. He's always active. He's the tireless servant, finding needs, pursuing men and women who have needs. 
and being pursued by men and women who are in need. That's the tireless servant. There's actually no one fitting name that could sum up Jesus Christ. Billy Sunday, the great evangelist from many years ago, the ex-baseball player, professional baseball player, turned fiery evangelist, Billy Sunday noted that in the Bible there are 265 different names for Jesus Christ, and that is because no single name can capture all that He is. So He is the God-man. Not just a good man, the God-man. And here He is the one who is a servant ministering to people in need. Now, here's where we're at in chapter 1. In verse 21, Jesus goes to the synagogue, reads from the text of Scripture, teaches from that text of Scripture, and heals a man who's in church that day, in synagogue that day, who's possessed by a demon. And I said last week, not everybody who goes to church is necessarily a great person. You might be sitting next to a demon-possessed person right now. Now, that didn't mean you nudge your husband and go, I knew it. That is, that is so you, dude. But in the synagogue in Capernaum, there was a demon-possessed man, and Jesus healed him, ministered to him. If you recall last week, I painted a picture for you so that you understand now what a synagogue service was like in antiquity that there was the Hazan, the minister of the synagogue, who kind of kept the place up. There was the ruler of the synagogue. In this case, his name was Jairus. He was the one who ordered the service for the people, the service structure for the people of God, the worship service. There were the elders who maintained important seats near the front of the synagogue service. Then there was a delegate of the congregation, The delegate of the congregation was somebody chosen on a particular day to read from the text and to teach from it. And that was Jesus. Next to Jesus would have stood an interpreter, since the text is read in Hebrew, but the people didn't speak Hebrew, they spoke Aramaic, because that was the language of the captivity. So when the Jews returned from the Babylonian captivity and kept it for hundreds of years, they spoke Babylonian, Chaldean, Aramaic. Then there were these almoners, two or three people who would take the gifts to the poor. So Jesus goes into the synagogue, the service is underway, He teaches people and He heals somebody who's demon-possessed. The people marvel. Now in verse 32, At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to Him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. Why demon-possessed? Well, news travels fast. This teacher, this guy who gave that like awesome sermon in the synagogue service, he has power over demonic spirits. Bring your demon-possessed friends tonight. So they all came out. Now why at evening? Because it was the Sabbath day. They weren't able to travel, at least those who lived a considerable distance away and wanted to get help from Jesus. Because they were Jewish, they would not dare travel until... The sun set, and you could go outside and see those three stars shining in the twilight. 
And that was your signal that the Sabbath was over, the next day had begun, and now that the Sabbath is over, you can go as far as you want. You see, you couldn't travel on a Sabbath day according to their law or their interpretation of the law. The rabbi said you could only travel 2,000 cubits. A cubit is 18 inches. So about a thousand yards. You couldn't, you could only travel 2,000 cubits. But, get this. Some Jews wanted to stretch it because, you know, if they could just walk a little bit further, they could reach the destination that they want to get on the Sabbath. And so they stretched it to, instead of 2,000 cubits, 3,000 cubits, using the measurement of the Roman cubit, which is not one foot six inches, but one foot nine inches. Which is funny and interesting and ironic because then they would be accused by the legalistic traditionalists for following the value system of the world rather than the value system of God. And that debate was endless. And legalistic people do that. They try to just kind of find out where their parameters are and what the limits are. And they try to just do it just so. But anyway, the sun has set. The evening has come. So... News has spread so quickly, they brought anyone who was sick, anyone who was oppressed with a demon spirit. Verse 33, And the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Here is a picture of the tireless servant, Jesus Christ. Seeking out, ministering to, loving on people who have need. He didn't say, look, I worked so hard and studied so hard and preached so hard in the synagogue service. Leave me alone tonight. This is comp time for me. I want the evening off. A picture of Jesus relentlessly pursuing needy people. You know, Jesus, some of you, He has been pursuing for a long time. The Bible says He is not willing that any should perish. Some people come to church casually. They come to sort of check it out, spot it out, see if they like it or not, grade it, etc., Everything except surrender their life to the one who wants to save their soul. And here is Jesus, working miracles, ministering salvation to the people who come. Now in the morning, verse 35. Having risen, I love this, a long while before daylight. It's wonderful to get up before daylight. Sometimes hard, sometimes my body doesn't want to. But to get up before the crack of dawn when nobody is stirring. There aren't sounds. There aren't cars. There are very few dogs even barking at that time. And to spend time with the Lord. Here's a picture of Jesus. God, God in human flesh, praying. Having risen a long while before daylight, He went out and departed to a solitary place 
And there he prayed. You should know that three times in the Gospel of Mark, Mark describes Jesus praying. Each time Mark describes Jesus praying, it's nighttime, it's a solitary place, and it's somehow related to the opposition of the religious people against him or some form of opposition. In this case, the demon-possessed man opposing him in the synagogue, which we read about last week. All three of those things you find every time Mark describes Jesus praying. It's night, a solitary place, and there's some oppression or opposition going on. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. He had obviously gotten up before Peter was awake. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues, notice that, throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Now synagogues were the focus, or at least part of the focus, one of the main focuses of Jesus' ministry. That's why Nicodemus in John chapter 3 could say to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher come from God. He couldn't have said that unless he developed a reputation as a synagogue teacher. So he went to other towns, to other synagogues, using Judaism, which he was birthed into as their Messiah, as the platform. Now a leper came to him. Notice a leper, not a leopard, a leper. A wild animal, it's not. A person with a disease, it is. Imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now stop right there and analyze that prayer. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now that doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of faith there. At least that's what some will say. I have actually been in in the past rebuked by people who have heard me pray, Lord, if it is your will, and I ask them for something. And they stop me and say, "You, you can never pray that if it is your will. You need to say, Lord, I claim it in the name of Jesus by the authority of all of heaven that this will be done, that that person will be healed or whatever you're praying for. And and my rebuttal is always the same. But I don't know if that's God's will or not. Well, then it's not a prayer of faith and you won't get anything. Well, keep reading because this guy does get something. And his prayer is, if you are willing, if you are willing. And I love the prayer. You are leaving open the sovereign will of God, not dictating to God what his will is. Frankly, I don't know what God's will is much of the time, unless there's something clear in the scripture. It's a clear scriptural principle that I can follow. Those are the things that govern and oversee our lives. But Have you ever been in gray areas where you just wonder, scratch your head? I wonder if it is God's will for this to happen or not. So that's how he comes. If it is your will, he says, you can make me clean. Now this guy's a leper. He has leprosy. When you read that in the Bible, it means one of two things. 
It's the broad term to describe all sorts of skin diseases. Or number two, it's the narrow term to describe the most loathsome kind of disease. If it's category number one, the the rabbis, the scribes, have cataloged 72 different skin diseases all under the realm leprosy. Anything from a burn to a boil to psoriasis to an itch. And if you remember your scripture, Leviticus 13, if a person had leprosy or was suspected of leprosy, any broad skin disease at all, he went to a priest and it was examined and he was quarantined, etc. And then if it didn't get worse, he was pronounced clean. It was obviously one of these 72 skin diseases short of the the narrow one. Okay, this one is in category number two. This is the narrow, loathsome disease known as the living death or walking dead. It's that which started as a spot on your arm or your foot and your arm or foot would eventually end up as a stump. It deadened the nerves. It necrosed the tissues. Uh, uh, A progressive necrosis took over. That form is called Mycobacterium leprae or Mycobacterium lepromatosis, a.k.a. Hansen's disease, something that was prevalent in the ancient world. If you remember, according to our study in Leviticus, a person who was examined by a priest, if he was suspected of having this kind of a disease because it's highly contagious, he had to rip his clothes, shave his head, He had to cry out, unclean, be 50 paces away from civilization and not allowed to have any social interaction whatsoever. According to Leviticus 13, he was kept outside the camp. That's the kind he has. Now, before we read what Jesus did, this is what you ought to know what most rabbis did in those days. They shunned them. Why did they shun them? Well, I don't want to get that disease. I don't want to come close to somebody like that. I dare not breathe in his air or touch him. Now, that would make sense, but they became calloused. One rabbi wrote, Whenever I see a leper, I throw stones at him lest he come near me. Horrible, isn't it? Another rabbi even wrote, I refuse to buy an egg on the street that has been walked on by a leper. Now in contrast to that, verse 41, Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out His hand and touched Him, and said, I am willing. Be cleansed. As soon as He had spoken, immediately the leprosy left Him, and He was cleansed. I'm sure when Jesus started reaching His hand toward Him, everybody gasped. (gasps) Right? Because nobody did that. People turned away from lepers. You don't turn toward them, but Jesus did. Now when He touched Him, that touch spoke volumes more than what Jesus had said. 
He could have said, uh, I'm willing. Yeah, I'm willing. I'm willing. Stay there. He said, I am willing. But then when he touched him, that touch spoke volumes more than anything he could ever say. Here's a demonstration of love and compassion. Here's a man. Imagine, here's a man who had not had human touch for who knows how long. If he was married, he, he hadn't felt the embrace or the touch of his wife or his child climb up on his lap or his grandkids come up and say, Grandpa, I love you with a kiss on the cheek. He hadn't experienced any of those filial kind of relational things that we often take for granted. So the touch, oh, wow, so unique. And he strictly warned him. This is fascinating and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go your way and show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely. Now, I don't chide him for that. If I had a loathsome disease and was pronounced incurable by the priesthood and now I'm instantly healed, it's hard to keep that quiet, especially since my friends and family know it already. Say, what happened to you? Nothing. (laughs) Yeah, but like you're totally cleansed. Yeah, I, I, I know. Whatever. It'd be hard to keep that quiet. So he began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. Why would Jesus tell him to not tell anybody? It seems sort of to defeat the purpose of evangelism. Number one, to proclaim it, to broadcast it, would have made Jesus like a magnet for all sorts of people who were following Jesus for the wrong motivation or would then follow Jesus for the wrong motivation. Hey, there's a dude who will heal you. Let's follow the guy who will give us whatever we need. People with the warped motivation of the name it and claim it mentality. They would have followed Jesus for the wrong reasons. Reason number two, he said, keep it quiet. It would be like painting a bullseye on Jesus. It would attract undue attention from his enemies. And it was not Jesus' time. You're going to see this rising up through the gospel narrative that culminates at the crucifixion. When Jesus' enemies finally have been plotting to put him to death, and that begins early on, by the way, when they finally get to that point. So that people wouldn't follow him with wrong motivations, number one, and number two, so that undue opposition before the time from Jesus' enemies wouldn't come. So what does Jesus do? He says, here, go to the priest and offer the sacrifices. Okay, now I'm going to take you back again. And see, this is why it's good to go through the Bible. Otherwise, if you had not read Leviticus, you'd just be going, huh? I don't get it. Which a lot of Christians do because they never read it. But you've read it. And you remember after Leviticus 13 comes, here it is, profound, Leviticus 14 where it says in verse 1, this is the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. 
the law anticipated the possibility of a man being cleansed even from the most loathsome, narrow, contagious disease called leprosy. So what was he to do? He was to go to the priest. He'd be inspected. He was to bring two doves with him, two birds. One was killed. The other bird, live bird was dipped in blood and then let go, you remember. He was quarantined for another week. And then if all was good, he was released. So go to the priest. Jesus is saying, follow the book. Follow the law. Do things according to Levitical protocol which would send a message to the priest that someone with messianic power is in their midst. It's like Jesus giving his calling card to the priesthood. Just go show yourself to the priest, claiming Leviticus 14, making the necessary sacrifices. That should pique their interest. Why? Because if I read my Bible correctly, nobody in Israel had been cured of leprosy since the days that Naaman the Syrian was cured by Elisha the Tishbite, the Tishbite prophet in the Old Testament. It was the last time in their midst, in their country, somebody was miraculously healed with leprosy. So this should arouse the interest of the establishment. Now there's something ironic I just want to bring to your attention. Jesus tells this guy to keep it quiet, and what does he do? He tells everybody. Today, Jesus tells us to tell everybody, and we, ouch, right? We keep it quiet. He says, tell it from the rooftops, shout from the housetops, tell everyone that I have come, that I have eternal life for them. Oh, I don't know if I want to do that. (laughs) Typical pattern, human pattern, to do exactly the opposite that Jesus would command us to do. Somebody once wisely said, evangelism is simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Has your life changed? Do you have hope and satisfaction and purpose and meaning? Then just tell people that. Tell people that. Hey, let me tell you what I used to be like. And you, you may look at me now and think I'm pretty awesome, and you'll be surprised if you go, no, I never thought you were awesome. I mean, this is the changed you. I hope that didn't happen to you. But we tell. Verse 1 of chapter 2. And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Now, presumably this is whose house? Peter's house. Because that was the house in chapter 1. Jesus doesn't have his own home. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's at Peter's house. His mother-in-law was healed in that house. So Jesus is staying in the house with Peter. But I love it that it says, it was heard that he was in the house. How cool to say, Jesus is in my house. It was heard. Hey, I hear that Jesus is in the house. What do people hear about your house? All the noises and words, songs, programs that you watch on television. How much of that noise of what can be heard would tell people Jesus is in this house. Jesus was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so there was no longer room to receive them, not even at the door. It's a packed house. And he, 
preach the word to them. I love it. The greatest need for these people was to have truth told to them, revealed to them. So he preached the word to them, God's truth to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. I'm glad that we live in this state because you're going to be able to understand this. If you lived in another state and you're trying to picture people breaking through the house and if you have a pitched roof house, how, how, do, you, how do you do that? How do they climb up there? In those places in the ancient Middle East, the architecture is very similar to a native New Mexico architecture where you have clay and wood beams and flat roofs. And why a flat roof? Well, because they didn't make pitched roofs. It is a drier climate like this. And also so that the family could go up on the roof because they would often put a little lean-to on top or some kind of a veranda covering of branches so that in, in um, warmer months you might even sleep outside. You, you could go outside and retire in the cool of the day uh, toward the afternoon, enjoy yourself with the family. It was like an extra room, a patio that gave you a beautiful view. It was common in those kind of homes. So there was typically a stairway on the side of the house that went up to the top of the roof. These four guys had faith. And you're going to see that in a minute. And they're thinking about their friend who's a paralytic. Man, we've got to figure out a way to get you to Jesus. We've seen what he can do. We've heard what he has promised. We've got to get you to Jesus. But now I can relate to this. They hated crowds. They hated lines. I hate lines. I don't know about you, but, you know, um, waiting in long lines like in traffic. Now, honestly, I just got to tell you, there is no traffic in this city, in this state. None. Never, ever, ever complain about it. Oh, you, you don't have to take my route. Listen, I took the 405 freeway every day for years where you don't go by miles. You go by hours to get from one place to the next. Bumper to bumper, and I hated it. That's why I'm not really fond of going to Disneyland and standing in line for like four hours to go on a four-minute ride. <laughs> so I, I used to buy this nifty little pass. It was a year-round pass. And I'd go like, as soon as it rained, I would hit Disneyland and go like on a couple rides. Nobody was there. And then I would leave the park. And then a couple days later, I'd find an off time and go back and go on a few more. But I hated long lines. These guys... Look, they couldn't even get into the house. The door's packed. It's jammed. There's so many people. Hey, let's go on the roof. So they broke through the roof. They had a breakthrough. <laughs> now the roofs had wooden beams with slabs of adobe, dried clay, that were placed on top, and then a smearing of wet clay on top for sealing. They chiseled through and broke through. Now if this were Peter's house... What do you think Mrs. Peter was thinking about now? Here's Jesus. My house is packed. I don't have enough hors d'oeuvres for these people. And now somebody's breaking in my roof. Thank you. This is all from following your Jesus, Peter. 
I mean, I don't know if that ever came up, but it would in a lot of homes, put it that way. Now look at this. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw whose faith? Whose faith? Their faith. Not the guy who had the disease's faith, the paralytic's faith. When he saw their faith, their faith, those four guys, then he turned and said to the paralytic, Oh, I love this. I love this because this overturns the notion, again, perpetrated by the faith churches, that say, if you're not healed, it's because you don't have enough faith to be healed. You have a disease. You have a malady. You have a problem. You could be healed. It's part of the atonement, they tell you. You just need to have enough faith. And if you don't get healed, the onus is on you, not God, because God has said you can be healed. Well, I don't read that here. I don't read that this guy, this paralytic, had any faith in Jesus at all. He might not have even known Jesus. He saw their faith. So I would say, hey, Mr. Faith Healer, you sound like you've got more faith than any of us. Let's use your faith for this healing now, shall we? I'm coming to you. I'm faithless. This person's been pretty beat up, doesn't have much faith. But boy, the way you talk, you seem like you have more faith than anybody in this town. So let's just borrow yours for this one. He saw their faith. And he said to the paralytic something interesting. In fact, it must have bummed out his four friends. He expected Jesus to look at their faith and then turn to their friend and say, You're healed. But he said, Son, and they're going, Come on, this is it. Your sins are forgiven. And I'm sure they went, Oh, man. We broke through the roof, might spend the night in jail for this. So anticlimactic, such a letdown. So why would Jesus turn to the paralytic and say, Son, your sins are forgiven? I'll give you three reasons. I think all of them fit the picture, fit the bill, and are correct. Number one, prior thinking. Number two, priority. And number three, power. I'll explain. It was the prior thinking of the Jews that anyone who was sick was sick because they were a sinner. The ancient Jews often linked suffering and sin. The rabbis would even say, whoever is sick will never be healed of their sickness unless their sin is dealt with first. That was their thinking. You got to deal with the sin. Do you remember the book of Job? Remember Job's three friends? Friends. Who came to comfort him and basically said, you're a big sinner, Job. That's why you have a big lot of suffering. Eliphaz the Temanite, one of his friends, even said, who ever perished being innocent? In other words, innocent people don't suffer like this. Obviously then, Job, you're not innocent. That's prior thinking. Reason number two, priority. Jesus said to that man the most important thing that needed to be said. What was his greatest need at that point? Now his friends would say, a physical healing. Jesus would say, no, it's not. Forgiveness of sin is the greatest thing. Because you can be healed and go to hell when you die. And what good 
is the healing then. As Jesus said, what will it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So because of prior thinking, because of priority, the most important thing to deal with was this man's sin. And so he said, son, your sins are forgiven you. Third is power. And that's in verse 6 and the following verses. Some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now analyze their statement. What they said is true. Part of it. But part of it is false. Here's the true part. Only God can forgive sins. That's true. Is that true? But they accused Jesus of blasphemy. Now that was false. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, I forgive your sins. Your sins are forgiven. He was making quite a statement of who He was, of who He is. So it was part right and it was part wrong. But immediately when Jesus perceived in His Spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, He said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Jesus not only knew the sins of the paralytic, He knew the hearts of these men. Now get this. Which is it easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed and go home. Okay, now stop. Which is it easier to say? Think about that. Is it easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? No, it's easier to say, Your sins are forgiven. It's harder to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Okay, so let's say we're in a social setting. There's a whole bunch of people gathered around you. Is it easier for you to say with the crowd watching, your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier for you to say, come on, get up, walk? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because nobody can see that part. It's internal. If you say, rise, take up your bed and walk, and it doesn't happen... You're in trouble. <laughs> right? You're false. People had their hopes up. You couldn't pull through. So, simply on a superficial level, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you're dealing with internals, a part that nobody can see on the outside. So now watch what he says. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, take up your bed and go to your house. To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise up and walk, it's impossible for man to say that. What's impossible for man, both of these are possible only for God. One who could say one of these statements could certainly say the other statement. And that's his point. Watch this. I want you to know that I have power over the stuff you can't see, the internal, the forgiveness of sin. So what I'm going to do is show you that I have authority over the external, the physical world, the natural world. And when I heal this man and you see that miracle in the natural realm, understand and be assured 
that I also have authority over that part that you can't see, the supernatural realm, the forgiveness of sin. Prior thinking, priorities, and power. Those are the three reasons Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Immediately, verse 12, he arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed, I would consider this an understatement, and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I don't know if you've ever actually seen a true physical healing. I don't mean not like, I have a cold and I prayed for it and I didn't sneeze. I'm not talking that. I'm talking something that is really an obvious, medically attested to healing. But I will guarantee you, I've seen one, seen a couple of them. And I never went and went, oh, praise God. I burst out weeping. It was so emotionally shaking to see someone who had nerve damage and could not move his hand, and the doctor said he has injured his radial nerve and will not be able to move his hand again, to watch that hand open up and begin to work again. Astonishing. So they were all amazed. Yeah! Understatement of the year. And they glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. And they went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to Him. And He taught them. There it is again. He wants to give them truth. Teach them. And as He passed by, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. Mark and Luke call him Levi, his Hebrew name Levi. Matthew gives us the other name, which is Matthew. Thank you. Hence the book of Matthew. But his original name was Levi because he was from the tribe of Levi. Matthew was probably a name Jesus gave to him. Now check this out. This is not uncommon. Jesus often renamed people. Am I right? Simon, I have a new name for you. I'm going to call you Peter, a little small stone. You're a chip off the old rock. Rocky. Or pebbles would be more accurate. So he gave him a new name. He renamed James and John who were referred to as sons of Zebedee. He called them sons of thunder because they wanted to call down fire on the Samaritan village. So kind of tongue-in-cheek humor. New nickname, you know, nuclear boys, sons of thunder. <laughs> Matthew was a name, no doubt, given to Levi by Jesus. Matthew means the gift of God. The gift of God? Are you kidding? This is a tax collector. The Jews hated tax collectors. Hated them. They were traitors. Why on earth would Jesus call him the gift of God? Because that's how Jesus saw him. He saw the potential to take a crook and make him a gift by changing him. You know, Jesus looks at you, others might look at you and see failure written all over you or sinner written all over you or traitor written all over, whatever it would be. 
Jesus says, ah, I can take you and make you a gift to others. I see what no one else can see, and I can do for you what no one else can do. So we called him Matthew. A couple things we know about him. He was Jewish, probably from the tribe of Levi. Now, if that's true, and we believe it is, most scholars believe that to be true, that would mean, being a tax collector, that he's a renegade PK. You know what a PK is, right? We call it a pastor's kid. In this case, priest kid. You know, this guy uh, had a background. He went to Sunday school or Sabbath school his whole life. In fact, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than any of the other Gospel writers. He really was soaked in the Scripture. He knew the Scripture. He probably ran away from that. He didn't want to be a religious person. He didn't want to join the priesthood. So he became a tax collector. So that's the second thing we know about him. He was a religious person from the tribe of Levi, a PK, but he became a tax collector. I mentioned the Jews hated tax collectors. They were placed in the category of worthless, defiled, vile sinners. If a tax collector touched a house, it was rendered unclean. One Jewish author said in those days, I have never yet seen a monument erected to an honest tax collector. They were considered traitors because typically, like Matthew, they were Jewish, but they worked for Rome, the Roman government, the enemies of the Jews, who had taken them captive now. But get this. Taxes were conducted by a method known as tax farming. The Romans would give to the highest bidder the ability to extract taxes from the people. There was a certain amount that Rome required whatever else he could gouge from the people by oppression he could keep for himself. So they were barred from the synagogue service. They couldn't go into synagogue. If one felt, oh, i got to go talk to God, you weren't allowed in the synagogue if you were a tax collector. Now, I, I just want to enlighten some of, of us who think we might have it bad with taxes. And I typically do. I am one who would espouse, um, get the government out of the way and lower taxes and all that. But I just want to give you a little perspective check. There were so many taxes in those days, it was ridiculous. Number one, there was called the poll tax. Anyone, male or female, if you were a male age 14 to age 65, female age 12 to age 65, you paid a poll tax. That was simply your tax for being alive. For breathing Roman air, you paid the poll tax. Number two, there was income tax. On top of the poll tax, a flat 10% for everyone. Number three, there were the ground taxes. One-tenth of all the grain, one-fifth of all the wine was given to Rome. Harbor taxes, import taxes, road taxes. In Galilee, in the Mediterranean, there were fish taxes. You would be taxed per net that you would bring in and per individual fish. On top of that were the cart taxes. You would be taxed per wheel on the cart. If your cart had four wheels or three wheels or a wheelbarrow kind of a cart, one wheel. You'd always want that because you get taxed less. So there were enormous taxes. It became such a burden 
And Matthew got a chunk of all of it. So he was hated. The third thing we know about Matthew is he's very decisive. Jesus came to him one day at the tax booth and he said, follow me. And it says, notice, so he arose and followed him. Matthew had more to give up probably than any of the other disciples. Very wealthy, a shoe-in for the rest of his life with the Roman government. If you left your job working for the Roman government and you walked away from it, you could never walk back in that door and get your job back. Close the door. That's why Luke, when he describes this scenario, said he left everything and he followed Jesus. Now, probably Matthew had heard of Jesus, maybe even saw a miracle or two, obviously to be that decisive and to follow Jesus. You wouldn't do that for just anyone. Now what happened is he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners sat together with Jesus and his disciples for there were many and they followed him. When the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, you're you're meant to sort of sneer when you say that. That's how they did it. They said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? Now you know that the Jewish view of eating, whenever you ate with someone, was to enjoy the most intimate form of fellowship. Revelation 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Jesus said, If anyone open the door, I will come in and eat with him, sup with him. Have a meal with him. You're bringing somebody into that intimacy of fellowship that is unlike anything else. So this was a farewell dinner where Matthew simply wanted to share his faith with his friends and share his Lord with his friends. And he gets accused by the religious elite. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a doctor or a physician. But those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We get forgiven in the same way a patient who goes to a doctor gets cured. The patient has to admit that something's wrong. How odd would it be for you to be in the doctor's office and he calls you and the doctor said, what's wrong? Nothing. Why are you here? No reason. Just love doctor's offices. Okay, thank you. Pay your copay and get out of here. You have to admit something's wrong. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said. You have to acknowledge, I'm sick. I need to be cured. I'm a sinner. I need to be forgiven. Those who are well don't need a doctor. But those who are sick, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What Jesus is doing by this statement is indicting them in spiritual malpractice. You guys are a bunch of spiritual quacks. You can diagnose the disease, but you can offer no cure. You can point your finger at the sinner and the tax collector and sneer at them, you quacks. Don't you know that sick people need good doctors? I've come 
to cure the sick, spiritually sick, the sinner. See, the Pharisees did nothing to win people to faith. All they did is point fingers at people. Jesus came to cure. I've always loved the story of Oliver Cromwell, who led England during a time of crisis. And one day when his soldiers, his men came to him and said that they had run out of silver and gold with which to mint coins for the empire. And they said, there is no silver left. There is no gold left. The only silver and gold left in all of England are the statues in the great cathedrals. Oliver Cromwell smiled and said, melt down those saints and get them back into circulation. It's a good, it's a good word for us. I think we need to be sort of broken down and we got to get into circulation. We can point our fingers at all the bad stuff happening in the world. Jesus came to cure and to heal. Then says verse 18, the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. They came and said to him, why did the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, there was only one mandatory day of fasting. Do you remember when that was? You've studied Leviticus now. You know it. Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. That's the only day they're told to afflict their souls or to fast. But the Pharisees and the scribes did it twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Why'd they do that? Well, probably they wanted to draw close to God. That was their original thinking. But eventually they really did it to be seen by people because Jesus made a note that they loved to fast by painting their faces as if they were sick and gaunt and malnourished and stand on the corners of the streets during rush hour in Jerusalem, kind of moaning and mourning so people would go, wow, look at those holy rollers. <laughs> and Jesus said, I'll tell you what they are. They're a bunch of actors, hypocrites. Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Once again, these religious people believe that an outward kind of a sobriety, seriousness, even mourning was holy. Jesus was saying, uh, that would be like totally inappropriate because I, Jesus, am with these guys right now. I'm the bridegroom who's with the bride. We're all together. It's to be a time of joy, not mourning. The day is coming. Speaking of the future of his death and ascension into heaven when he would be away. There will be a time for fasting, but now's the time for joy. Let's just close on that note. More could be said, and I wish we had more time to finish the chapter. I mean, I'm ready to do so, but you have children, we have commitments, and we like to keep our time commitment. Though we're not a slave to it, we just want to honor that, and we think honor the Lord. But go out on that note. Rather than this... Being what marks you, that frown, that dour, doleful, mourning look. I mean, how attractive is that? 
people will see you and they go, what's up? I'm a Christian. (laughs) Then you will be treated like a leper. Unclean! Go away from me. Don't want to catch that. I hope it's not contagious. But if you have a freedom, a joy, a choix de vivre, as the French call it, that will be noticed, it will be attractive, and people will say, I want to get some of that. Is Jesus with you? Celebrate Him. If He's in your midst, celebrate Him. Amen. Oh, Father, thank You that You've taken away the garment of mourning and You've given us the garment of praise, the oil of gladness and joy. Lord, some of us indeed have broken hearts. Some of us feel bombarded, attacked by the enemy, saddened by events that are happening in our lives, people that we love, people around us, news that we've heard. But Lord Jesus, you are both God and both man. You know what it's like to be a man. You know what it's like to be God. As man, you relate to everything we go through. As God, you have the power to deal with everything we go through. And so as the writer of Hebrews tell us, so we do, even now as we close this service, we come before your throne boldly that we might approach the throne of grace to find help, mercy, in time of our need. And we pray, Lord, that you will lift our spirits as Jesus lives and abides in our house this body, and where we live at our home, our family. I pray that it would be noised abroad, that it would be heard that Jesus lives there. It's in His name, His strong name that we pray. Amen.